This is Delilah S. Dawson, and you are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Affirmative. That was definitely an e-ticket. I can't believe all the new gadgets they've got now. For a while, we didn't even have a house phone, not to mention laser discs, high-def TV. are listening to the great big beautiful podcast this week on the show the great irony is that now that i write full-time and on the schedule that i do i have less time to write than when i was squeezing it into the margin (laughs) but (laughs) i i because of that i'm less precious about routine so i try to create as few parameters for myself as possible because what happens is that parameters oh i need to have absolute quiet or i need to have this coffee shop or i need to have this drink become excuses when you travel. They become, oh, I don't have these things, so I can't write. Welcome to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all those places at thegbbpodcast. I am Jamie Green. You can find me at the Roarabots. And joining me this week... Oh, it's Sherry again. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here again. How have you been? I have been good. How have you been? Not too bad. Can't complain. Can't complain. Been busy, but uh, it's better to be busy than just sitting around twiddling your thumbs, right? Agreed. I just wish it would be fall instead of summer four. Yeah, we the weather here has been crazy. Yesterday was like full on summer, and mm-hmm. today has been like fall. Yep. So I, you know, this is how people get sick. <laughs> <sighs> I feel old. I sound old, don't I? This is how people get sick with this crazy weather. <laughs> anyway, have, uh, have you read anything good lately? I, I have. You know, I read Victoria Schwab's new book. <gasps> really? I did. <laughs> I know, right? So um, we're just going to jump right into it. No, no more of this chit chat. Uh, this week, we did talk to uh, Victoria Schwab. She writes variously under Victoria or V.E. Schwab, uh, depending on whether she's writing for, quote unquote, adults or young adults. Uh, and she, her newest book is a young adult like ghost story. Is it, that's, that's not incorrect, right? No, I mean, it's a ghost that's, story. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. It is. It is. It's even called City of Ghosts. Although... When we talked to her, that was her newest book. But now, since we talked to her, her sequel to Vicious came out, which is Ventral. And it, yes. that's an adult book, and it's amazing. Five years we waited for this book. So Vi- Vicious was – it's not the book that – w- I mean, it wasn't like her debut book or anything like that. But it was sort of like that was the book that really put her on the map for a lot of people, mm-hmm. I think. Um, she, so if you're familiar with her, she's got those two books, Vicious and Now Vengeful, which are, you know, her runaway fan favorites, I guess is what we would say. Uh, her new, the book that was, uh, the newest when we talked to her, City of Ghosts, uh, we talked quite a bit about that, but then she's also got the, uh, the Shades of Magic series, Mm -hmm. which is a trilogy at this point. And I'm pretty sure that's it. It's a trilogy. (laughs) But um, she is working on a prequel comic called The Steel Prince, which comes out, I think, in October. Mm-hmm. I think the first issue. Um, I saw the Ashcan preview at San Diego. It's amazing. 
Um, and then I feel like she may have suggested to us that there will be other books set in the Shades of Magic universe, even if they're not uh, with her previous cast. So this is really interesting to me. So last week, well, it's not actually last week when this, these episodes get released. So previously. <laughs> previously on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. <laughs> we talked to R.A. Salvatore. Samantha and I talked to R.A. Salvatore. And his newest book, uh, Timeless, is a Dritz story set in the you know the forgotten realms with with his character of Drist but it's it's sort of a prequel it's it's much more about his Drist's father and uh, it's filling in some cracks earlier in the story than than the other 30 some books that he's written and Terry Brooks when we talked to him did the same thing with with Shannara he wrote you know however many dozens of books in the Shannara chronicles in the Shannara series and then Eventually, he got to an end and he said, okay, that's all the story that I have going forward. But then he went back and filled in some of the backstory. And this seems to be, obviously, George Lucas did it. You know, Tolkien did it. This seems to be a somewhat common thing with, I don't know if it's limited to fantasy or science fiction or genre, but it is a common thing with these people who write these incredibly vast stories that take place over over a really long period of time that eventually they go back and they they do a prequel of sorts well and explain that to me as someone who writes in that genre um i can see that because you spend all this time on world building and there are all these little shoot offs and offshoots and roots and plant cuttings that you plant somewhere (laughs) else and they grow and Characters that you simply don't have the word count or the page count to explore in sort of your your main trunk story. But you write a lot of it because you need it to craft the world and to craft the characters. Um, you need to know those things. So those become their own stories. And then from those little bits, you get more stories. Um, and you know, there's something I'm writing right now where, um, Loki is the parent of two different characters, but he's one character's father and she's one character's mother, because that's something that happened with Loki in mythology. So, you know, then the question comes up, well, that's interesting. I would like to explore both of those relationships, but you don't want to, to digress too far from your main story again in your sort of trunk series. So you write short stories or you write prequel comics or you sometimes now people have shared worlds where, where different writers will sort of take and run with those things. I actually think it's pretty cool. It is really cool. And one thing you just hinted at there and Victoria actually says when we were talking about this is that, you know, the steel prince, the, the prequel graphic novel actually came about because that was a character that she needed to flesh out in her own mind. Mm So as she was outlining the books or writing some character development, you know, notes just for herself in order to know who these characters were and where she was going, 
you know, that just sort of, it was just sort of something that she wrote down because she needed to know it, but she didn't really explore it. And then when she was finished with the trilogy, she went back and she said, oh, you know what? This is really interesting. Like, I want to go back and now explore this a little bit more. And I, you know, I'll have stuff that um, the editor I work with will say, all right, this is really interesting, but it doesn't belong here. Mm. So don't throw it away. And I have a whole document of stuff that she's told me to hold on to for later. Um, And maybe it happens more with science fiction and fantasy because you are building whole worlds. If you're writing historical fiction, the world is already there for you. But when you're doing real world building, then you have all these little bits and pieces that you need to know, even if they don't make the final cut and they just spawn stories of their own. Yeah. I would imagine it's probably also a good way to go back and play with characters who you might have killed that too (laughs) it's just it's interesting that everybody does it you know it it, you know george lucas was notorious for having done it and he got a lot of crap for it but he was by no means the only person to have gone back and told a prequel he wasn't the first he wasn't the last and and he's certainly not in small company right i mean um, the Iliad is the prequel to the Odyssey, technically. Exactly. You know, <laughs> exactly. so you know, Odysseus wouldn't have had to get back if he hadn't gone in the first place. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, but also, you know, like Victoria did, um, the the character in the Shades of Magic books, he's already the king, and he's raising his own children, and he's certainly an interesting character. He's a little bit peripheral. Important, but peripheral. Um, but you kind of wonder, so how did he get there? And yet this yeah. is a royal marriage where the king and the queen are actually in love. And that's interesting because that's not something yeah. that happens all the time. Um, why did they adopt this other child when they already had an heir? How did the heir end up this unruly prince? Yeah. It's also cool, though, that now it seems like it's much more acceptable to tell these stories in different formats. You know, whereas maybe 20 years ago, if you had a short tale you wanted to spin off of your main saga, maybe you'd write a short story or maybe you would submit it and it would be like in a magazine or something like that, you know, or it would be in a collection, an edited collection of short stories. But now you can be like, well, I have this story that I want to tell. It's, it's cool. It's not really integral to the main saga, but you know, you could still tell it in a visual format. Mm-hmm. You could do it as a graphic novel and it's totally cool. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's world building in an entirely different way. Now. It is. And you know, it's, she's done it um, or she is doing it. Um, ben Aronovich did it with the uh, rivers of London series. He fills in the gaps between the novels with short stories and with comics. Well, I mean, in a way, Marvel's doing it with their, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the, we've got the cinematic universe, we've got the Netflix shows, we've got the ABC shows, we've got the comics, which many of, not all of them, but many of them also tie into that cinematic universe. Right. And what we're hearing now is that once the Disney streaming site gets going, we're going to have other shows over there that focus on characters. Yeah. So it's, I think that top to bottom from, you know, multi-billion dollar companies like Marvel down to independently published authors uh, have this freedom to tell their stories however they want. 
But anyway, we got a little sidetracked there. Victoria Schwab, um, we'll just jump right into it at this point. It's a great conversation. We we talk uh, primarily about City of Ghosts because that was the, it still is new, but that was the newest title when we talked to her. Uh, and we talk about, as we are wont to do on this show, we just talk about her creative uh, approach to writing, how she gets the words out every day, where her story, um, not where her story comes from, but how how it all comes together, I guess is a better, better way to say it. We talk about some of her other books. We talk about uh, The Steel Prince, the graphic novel, where she's going. It's a great conversation. Um, thank you guys for coming back week after week, coming, hitting subscribe. If you don't subscribe, please do so. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Leave us a feedback, I guess, or comments, or just give us some stars wherever love you listen us. to <laughs> Love us. Love. Throw us some love wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, I know there's a thousand and one different places where you can be listening to podcasts. So wherever you find us, thank you. Um, but, you know, throw some love back our way and uh, help us keep doing what we're doing. I am Jamie Green. You can find me as always at the Roarbots and Shiri. Where can the good people find you? On Twitter, um, I am SW Sondheimer, and on Instagram, I am uh, irate underscore Corvus. Awesome! And here is our conversation with Victoria V. E. Schwab. Enjoy. Victoria, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's awesome to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, were you a uh, writer as a kid? Was this something that you always knew you wanted to do, or did you fall into it at some point? Uh, I, I always knew I wanted to be a storyteller, but I never thought I would be a novelist. Does that make sense? I I started out writing poetry and short fiction, basically anything that I could do that wasn't novel length, because I was convinced they didn't have the attention span. Uh, I'm still a little convinced they don't have the attention span to write something three or four or 500 pages long. But I was actually a sophomore in college when I realized that the only reason I hadn't tried to write a novel was because I was afraid of failing. I was afraid of starting and, and not being able to finish. And I have a pretty adversarial relationship with fear. And so once I realized that it was fear based, I made myself sit down and do it. Yeah. What's the what's the first thing that you remember writing? Oh man! Uh, so like I say, I, I grew up with Shel Silverstein and William Blake, yeah. and so most of my early writing um, was always poetry and always in rhyme scheme. My parents joked that for a few years, like I would think in in metric, nice. like in rhyming <laughs> patterns and schemes. So I don't remember the first poems, but I do remember the first short story that I ever like wrote and finished. I was probably, oh man, like 10, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was really dark, also very um, prescient, probably. It was about <laughs> two brothers, the angel of life and the angel of death. And the angel of death got really jealous because everybody loved the angel of life and nobody loved and appreciated him. Aww. And so he killed his brother, the angel of life, and then basically the world came down around his shoulders and he was left alone anyway in the end. That's pretty deep for a 10-year-old. Yeah, I know. I had a dark, dark aesthetic. <laughs> did, did you guys read a lot of Bible? <laughs> it's very biblical. No, 
So, like, I'm pagan. I was raised kind of, like, very loosely Jewish, but I've always been really interested in archetypes. So hero, villain, um, kind of gatekeeper, trickster. I, I was just, I had a deep fascination, probably from Grimm's fairy tales, with these kinds of uh, manifestations of identity. So, like, personifications of death or of life or of nature. I just... I really loved them. And if I look back at a lot of like my very early poems, they definitely had an apocalyptic bent to them. To get it. But again, a lot of William Blake's did as well. And I was also reading Baudelaire. And so they tended to have this dark uh, end of the world aesthetic happening. That explains a lot about why I have a very personal connection with your books, because I was also <laughs> raised Jewish, but got into this other stuff very young. <laughs> right? Well, I just remember having like, on a side note, I remember one Hanukkah so we were I was raised loosely Jewish my father traveled for work though so he was almost never around on high holidays and and I wasn't really a believer he was the guiding force and I just remember I was like 13 and it was Hanukkah and we had a Christmas tree in the other room because my mom just really liked Christmas trees (laughs) and and I was given like a little Buddhist um kind of meditation set for Hanukkah. And I basically stopped my parents. And I was like, guys, I think we have to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly there's something happening here in the like, uh, we need to focus a little bit. I think we need to have an honest conversation about religion. So yeah, I'm a bit of a mishmash. Now the closest thing, I mean, I'm pagan, but the closest thing that I usually give people is like Shinto, which is a Japanese, um, religion that's highly nature-based and this idea that gods are in everything which inspires awe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely a mishmash upbringing. That's incredible. I, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, it's kind of becoming par for the course, I think, with, with our generation and the ones that are coming after. Like, I, I at least for me, like, I wasn't really raised either. My, my mom was was Catholic, my dad was Jewish, and my sister and I were nothing. And like, it feels like many of my friends have similar experiences. You know, it's just the people coming together, not for religious reasons anymore. And the kids are just sort of raised up to figure it out on their own, I guess. Well, and it's also the difference between, this is a direction you didn't think any of this podcast was going to go, right? Um, it's the difference between religious and spiritual. Yeah. Like, I consider myself a highly spiritual person, but I'm very anti-organized religion. And a lot of my friends, it's that same thing. It's this, I think, as we become, like, especially those of us who are raised in a highly global society and a highly digital society, we have access to such a breadth of thought and, and a spectrum. Like, we are, on the whole, becoming a less binary thinking society, for the better. And so this ability now to think about spiritualism and organized religion as separate entities is something I think which permeates a lot of our generation's culture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway. Anyway. <laughs> my books are strange and dark and have magic in them. <laughs> um, before, yes. But you mentioned Shel Silverstein. So I have to ask, were you as terrified by him as I was? From his author, no, no, because his author picture. Oh no, he looked like the devil. Yeah, best way though. I was (laughs) like, this dude has it together. I was, I was such a fanatic. I was raised on them. Like I had the first editions, like of all of all of the collections. Like I just was completely mesmerized by both him and by 
every single one of those poems. Oh, I I love them. He looks like the devil the way Tom Ellis looks like the devil. Exactly, exactly. Like a very... (laughs) A very good version. <laughs> yeah. I love those books. And my daughter loves them because I still have mine from when I was a kid. So I gave them to my daughter and she has just like read them all multiple times through. But she has the same reaction to his author photo as I did. And I think that as every kid does, you know, you love the books and then you turn it over and you see this terrifying picture oh, of menacing. this guy on the back. You're like, how could this be the same person? <laughs> He's menacing, but it's one of those things where as you then age a little bit with those books and go back and revisit them, yeah. the the dichotomy disappears. And yeah. all of a sudden, like as an adult, that image, like the image of him makes complete sense with the poem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a child, you're just like, whimsical, strange poem, devil looking person. <laughs> and then as you grow up, you're like, oh man, like I completely get how we got from A to B here. Yep. Yeah, it totally makes sense now. <laughs> Um, so early in your career, um, how long had you been, um, writing and submitting before you got your, your first manuscript was accepted? I mean, was it a long road or were you, did you have one of those lucky breaks right off the bat or how did, how did that work for you? Um, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I also think it's like super important to note that like not every, like, not every book that gets you an agent gets you a book deal. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, I think there's this misnomer that like, once you finish the book that gets you a literary agent, you're set, like all the doors suddenly open. Um, So because I came from a poetry background, my first book, my first draft was very pretty. And I mean, pretty in this, uh, in a lyrical aesthetic way, the language was unusual for fiction at the time. Like, Mm -hmm. Because I was essentially like, well, I was a sl- I'm a Slytherin. So I was like, okay, well, I love writing poems. I'm never going to make a career and money and like be able to support myself writing poems. But what if I just took everything that I know about my poetry and what tends to, you know, work and adapt it to fiction? So what if I just make sure that I give the same awareness to cadence and lyricism as I'm writing? And what that did was even at 19, um, it set my work apart. And that's not to say my work was great, but it was unusual enough that it started getting attention Hmm. from agents, right? And so I was fortunate enough that my first novel, the first attempt at a novel that I wrote, was um, it never sold, but it did get me my first literary agent. And I don't still have that literary agent. I was was young in every way, shape, or form, but it did get me my first agent. It would go on to be submitted to publishers it would go to acquisitions meeting which is the final stage in which a publisher decides if they're going to buy a book four times at Mm. four different houses and it would never be bought and it was never bought because as aesthetically pleasing as any of that writing was there have there was no plot right (laughs) Right. at the end of the day like it wasn't a story it was an interesting exercise but it, it became a kind of crash course in publishing because I was greeted with really kind of instant interest and then very successive failure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like for the next year and a half, I just was like told no over and over and over again. And I was still a university student at the time. So I was fitting in this creative pursuit in the margins. And essentially I spent that year and a half going back to my my education. And it wasn't until I was a second semester senior that I sat myself down again and said, okay, the fear is kicking back in. If I don't try again, this will have been a fluke. 
and I will be somebody who goes on and has another life and comes back to writing maybe in my 30s or 40s or 50s and wonders why I let that time lapse. And I was like, so I'm either going to let it go for now and accept that I'm not going to come back to it for a while, or I'm going to sit down and I'm going to make myself write another book to prove to myself it wasn't a fluke. Mm-hmm. Um, I was an only child who went to like all girls Southern preparatory schools. You become very <laughs> self-driven. <laughs> and so I needed to do this for myself. I needed to know that I could write another book. And so I, um, I dedicated two hours, I really didn't have, but two hours every single night, my second semester of my senior year, um, you know, in among thesis and majors and minors and everything else you're trying to do to like prepare for graduation. And I, I went to a coffee shop across the street from my school for two hours a night all semester. And the result was at the end of that semester, I had another book. Hmm. Um, and that book, was still totally flawed and very strange and very small. It was only like 50,000 words, uh, mm-hmm. maybe 45,000 words as a draft. But it um, went on submission the summer after I graduated college, and that fall it sold. And that would become The Near Witch, which was my very first novel. It came out um, in 2011. Hmm. Do, do you still have a writing routine? Like, Do you still make yourself sit down for a certain number of hours or words every day? No. So now um, I write full time, which I think sounds like a luxury and in many ways it is. But um, it, I also have four publishers and the deadlines are, are crippling. So I, I'm definitely like it is a self-driven career. Um, I'm someone who tries to impose structure on my life in that uh, I know if I have two hours to write, I'll spend two hours writing. If I have eight hours to write, I'll spend eight hours writing and I'll have the exact same number of words at the uh, end of it. I expand yeah. to fit my face. <laughs> what I will say, though, is because of where my career is right now, um, I feel like I have less time than ever to write. Yeah. Um, so I have to, you know, I, I travel for work. I do anywhere between 40 and 80 events a year. And when you think about that, like that's one every, you know, at its most one every four days. And um, and so there are a lot of demands and a lot of other things that go into being an author, uh, especially one that publishes as strangely and broadly as I do that take away time. I mean, today I I have eight phone calls or 10 phone calls today for I have two interviews and eight retailer calls for comics. And so that's 10 phone calls. That's a, you know, that's a good six or seven hours I won't be writing. Yeah. So I, I have to basically, the great irony is that now that I write full time and on the schedule that I do, I have less time to write than when I was squeezing it into the margin. <laughs> but I, I, because of that, I'm less precious about routine. So I try to create as few parameters for myself as possible because what happens is that parameters, oh, I need to have absolute quiet or I need to have this coffee shop or I need to have this drink, become excuses when Mm. you travel. They become, oh, I don't have these things, so I can't write, you know? So I try to create as few restrictions on myself as possible. One thing I do try, though, is I try to write something early in the day because I find that if I start early creatively, if I get that engine running, I'll be more productive creatively throughout the rest of the day. If I get to four or five in the afternoon and I haven't written anything yet, I am really good at being like, well, I guess I'll try again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I don't, I don't start well later in the day. Um, looking back at the, the, I'm interested in the, the, 
I guess immediate. I don't know if you want, if you would say immediate, but it, it, almost immediate interest that your writing had. But then the you know, the rejections and the and the, the the longer road that you had after that. Um, mm-hmm. Is that advice you would give to other writers? Like, be unique, be different, or or is there a danger of just being too different and and, and not knowing what to do with your writing? I mean, that's that's really hard and really personal. It's going to depend on the individual creator. What I will say is like. Part of it is that um, so much of publishing, so much of writing books is about finding your voice, right? And when you're starting to write, you necessarily mimic writers and works that you like. And one of the hardest and most necessary things that you have to do the more you write is figure out who you are. What is your voice? And that's not to say it has to be strange. That's not to say it has to do something that's never been done before. But the only way to figure out what your voice is and how it sounds on paper is to write. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons that I'm constantly advising young writers to write as much as possible. I wasn't writing novels, but I was writing short fiction and poetry obsessively every day to try and figure out what my voice was. You know, yeah. and so it, it comes down to what are your turns of phrase? What are your cadences? What do you lean into? What are your weaknesses? For instance, my weakness is plot. And I know that my weakness is plot. So I spend probably five to six times the amount of time that some of my colleagues spend on plot to turn that weakness into a strength. So I think it's just it's a matter of creating self-awareness and, and understanding your voice in your work. And really, the only way to do that is to write enough that you stop mimicking other people and you start finding your own stride. And I wish there was a formula and I wish there was a way to tell people how to do that, but it's just practice. Yeah. So is that, I mean, at this point, you know, with the number of books that you've published and the number of, you know, in the comics and you've worked across so many different genres and for different audiences, middle grade, young adult, adult, quote unquote, um, is that is that by design? Is that like what you're talking about? Are you still even after this number of this many books and this amount of success? Are you still looking for your voice? I mean, I hope not. I'm definitely looking for a voice or a specific voice for my characters now. But I have a pretty good sense of what my writing mm-hmm. sounds like to me. In fact, regardless of what age group I'm writing for, I always say that I write for a version of myself. So I'm writing my middle grade books for 11 or 12 year old me. I'm writing my YA novels for 18 year old me. I'm writing my adult novels for whatever age I am at the time I'm writing it. And I think that creates a continuity that has allowed my readers to read across the boundaries of my work, even if they don't consider themselves a middle grade reader or a young adult reader or an adult reader. There's this through line that I think is more stylistic, is more personal so I'm actually a really firm believer in being authentic and not trying to um, emulate the arena in which you're playing. Yeah. And I would certainly agree with that. Um, I read I read City of Ghosts myself before I read it to my kids. Um, <laughs> and I enjoyed it Smart. on my own. And I enjoyed reading it to them. Um, I yeah. essentially read it twice in about a week and a half. So <laughs> um, talk to oh. us a little bit about writing the horror edged fantasy for kids, you know, because how do you strike a balance between giving it a, a sort of pleasurable creep factor and then a terror that kind of goes over the top? 
So I love this. Um, I was originally asked, I've been asked a few times now since City of Ghosts, my baby middle grade came out, like, how did you decide what age group you were going to write it for? And the answer is because I wanted to write a scary book. And children's books are actually the best place to write a scary book. I think in adult genre, um, it tends to always, like, they tend to skew into Stephen King. Like, Stephen King is the model. And if you're not writing a Stephen King-esque horror, it's hard to fit. And in YA, horror doesn't really sell. Um, there, like, there are other existential crises happening at that age level um, that take more weight, right? And middle grade, though, children's books are like the absolute best place to be afraid. One, because on an existential level, you are teaching children that they have control over their fear in this way. They can put down a book. They can stop reading. They have an, a measure of control over this environment that they will not have over many things as they grow up but also kids love to be afraid in ways that adults cannot handle like things which scare children and adults are so totally different and I love it because like kids are just better at being afraid <laughs> like they can handle their fear and it doesn't could turn into for most of them this existential dread that it does for adults you know they just like it they they can see the adventure in it I have I've had so much fun in fact I'm constantly asking myself like is it scary enough am I making it scary enough how do I make it creepier you know do you have like a like a when you write for an audience like for middle grade you know which you're not in the middle grade anymore. Like, do you have a group of kids that like you can bounce ideas off of or like, is this too scary or is this working for you? Like, do, how do you get that, that sort of feedback? I wish I, I don't, I don't have children myself and um, my deadlines are such that usually it's a pretty close conversation between me and my editorial team. What I will say though, is those books come out with Scholastic. Mm -hmm. I have an entire team that understands their audience as well and children books as well. And so I'm really fortunate in that I have, you know, 10 to 12 people who work so closely with this age group that they um, are getting feedback on a level that I usually don't. I do have a couple of friends though, who have kids who are finally getting to the age where I can start using them <laughs> and start being like, Hey, read this for me. Um, I want to know. But again, like, you know, one of the reasons I don't is because as I said, like, one of the ways I've gotten by in this industry and one of the ways I've found my place in this industry is by writing for myself. So I'm not actually writing for every kid. I'm writing for a very specific kind of kid. I'm writing for the kind of kid that I was. And, and I really love when I find that kid, but I also know it's not every kid. Like I know just like my YA books are not going to appeal to every 17 and 18 year old. I, I, I don't try to write broadly, if that makes sense. I'm trying to write, making sure that a very specific kind of child sees themselves. Um, City of Ghosts is set in Edinburgh. And um, am I correct that the, the second book is set in Paris? Yeah. Okay. So was there anything in particular, uh, bleh, excuse <laughs> me, in particular that <laughs> drew you to those locations? Um, well, so I actually started writing City of Ghosts because I lived in Edinburgh. I went to graduate school in Edinburgh. I actually have a house now in Edinburgh. Like I spend a good portion of my year there. It is my, it is, the book is dedicated to the city where I keep my bones. And, and that's, I mean, it is my heart space. It is my, I consider it my home. 
And so the first book was set there because it was a place I was getting to know so well. And it's a place that really, really loves both its history and its hauntings. So it was kind of an obvious choice for me. I had always wanted to write a book set there. Um, Paris was, my family lives in France and I spend a lot of time in Paris as well. And I wanted to write a place that was really, really different from Edinburgh. So if Edinburgh wears its ghosts on its sleeve, Paris has them buried under the street. Like Paris is such a beautiful, light and airy place that it's, I wanted to take a different take. I wanted to go from somewhere that was just so obviously haunted. Anyone who's like been to Edinburgh or walked the streets of Edinburgh, it's not a long stretch to believe that it's haunted. Um, whereas Paris, it has such a, it's the city of light, you know, it's a different reputation. And yet Paris is built over the catacombs, which hold 6 million skeletons. Yeah. So like, there's a level to Paris that so many tourists don't get. And I wanted to play with that. That's amazing. I mean, you, you don't, yeah. I mean, so like Paris, when I, I've been there a couple of times and again, it's exactly what you say. Like you walk around the streets and it's just, it has this, this mystique of being this romantic place, the city of lights. And it's, it's so romantic and yeah. it's beautiful, but then all you got to do is go into one church you know, or in your go down yeah. into the, go down into the crypt, or go down into any of the catacombs, and it's like there's a dark, dark history to this city that most people don't realize. I know, and I love that. And so, because so the thing about these books, I really want people to know is that the primary ghost, like the the adversary for Cassie Blake and Jacob, um, is fictional, like is invention. So the Raven in Red in City of Ghosts is an invention, um, and the the baddie in um, the second book is an invention, but every other ghost story in these books is like a recorded ghost story in the city. Hmm. So I didn't make up any other ghost story. So wow. I tried to pull from a fabric of existing phenomenon and lore that is really like grounded and rooted in the cities. So then how much research did you do while you were writing? Um, so I do a lot of I do a lot of research from like the ghost story perspective, and then I spend a lot of time in each place. Uh -huh. So I've done numerous research trips now to Paris to go to the different locations and to make sure that I understand what it's like because I know I have these voracious readers who will make those tours, who uh -huh. will want to go through Edinburgh and go to the different places in the book, and will want to go to Paris and go to the different places, and I want to make sure they can do that. Yeah. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy to think about? You know, I mean, because most, I don't know if I could say most, but so many authors would be thrilled just to have a rapt audience, you know, but to have yeah. a readership that is so dedicated and so in love with the work that you do that they're going to go on these tours to the seat, like to the locations that you've included it's in the crazy. book. That's crazy, isn't it? Well, it's like when I, I told Neil I Gaiman... When I told Neil yeah. Gaiman I went to the House on the Rock because of American Gods, he was still yeah. excited. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. It's really wonderful. One of the things that made me so happy was that there are maps in these books so that you can actually see where these places are. Um, yeah, I love it. I mean, I'll, I'll never get over it. I have one of the most dedicated readership. I, I don't know how I got fortunate enough to have them, but... They are so passionate and so wonderful. Um, yeah, I, I, I'll never get over it. Like, it never ceases to <sighs> amaze and humble me. Yeah. 
I've I saw on Twitter that <laughs> I saw, I've seen on Twitter lately too that you've been um enjoying some of the fan art of Oh um, yeah, I always enjoy the fan art. Vengeful. <laughs> it's great. Well, and so I'm really really excited for Vengeful to come out because I'm hoping that it inspires a lot of Marcella fan art, my main villainess uh in this book. Uh, she's a style icon. <laughs> she's like if Kristen Ritter was a real housewife <laughs> who had impeccable fashion sense. Yeah. So I'm like really hoping for some amazing fan art to come out of it, especially because the Shades of Magic readership has always been the, the more vocal when it comes to fan art, the more uh, prolific, if you will. Uh, so I'm excited. Honestly, I think fan art is one of the coolest things that can happen, one of the coolest gifts that readers can give back because it also tells me when I'm – um, conveying something. So if I get a hundred pieces of Kel Maresh fan art from A Darker Shade of Magic and Kel always looks vaguely the same, it means I'm doing something right descriptively because it means they're able to see yeah. this character. So as a creator who sees those, your own creations kind of put thrown back to you, um, where where does the fan art rank? I guess if you're if you're talking about fan art versus fanfic versus cosplay, like wh- as a creator, what do you appreciate the yeah. most to see come back to you? Well, fan art's the easiest for me to see. It's definitely the most prolific. Like, there's a lot of it, and I love that. Um, and I'm always really honored when like professional artists take it on as well. So I, I try to stay up to date on that. Cosplay is like the ultimate. It's like this level of dedication and I have just started getting it. So like just started having people come up to me at cons and at festivals dressed as my characters. Nice. And that, I mean, it stirs my heart every single time. Fan fiction is a harder one. I love it and I appreciate it. And I'm so glad it's out there because it is a love letter in, in its way. But I also like, I'm not supposed to read it because there's this really murky legal ground of like, if I read it and I made public that I Uh read it and then something showed up in one of my books that was too close to one of the fan fictions and somebody could make an argument. It's just, it gets messy. So I'm like really glad it's there. Also, so I do this thing. So most of, a lot of the fan fiction from, of course, because fan fiction is fan fiction, um, is sexual, right? Right. Which I love and approve of. But because I can't read it, I, whenever I go on tour, if I have a publicist with me, one of my favorite things to do is make my publicist read it (laughs) like not out loud but i'll just like make her read it so i can watch her face and she can kind of like recount to me if there's like some recurrent themes or something like that Uh, i didn't know that there was an entire kink in fan fiction called soulbound which is like where when one person feels something the other person feels it but there's the two two of the main characters in the shades of magic series are tethered in this way in the books uh, one, Kel brings Rye back to life and in doing so binds them, like binds their lives together. And so they are canonically soul bound. Yeah. And so the amount of fan fiction that has come <laughs> out of that, it, it always kind of amazes me. <laughs> now I have to go down a rabbit hole because now I'm curious. Yes, archive of our, archive of our own, especially because in those books, uh, Kel has a very, very antagonistic relationship with Rye's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Alucard. And right. so when you add the soul-bound kink into that, there's like a, there's a lot of threesome 
fanfics, I have been told. <laughs> um, so, I, again, I love hearing about it, but I don't read it. Also, I love that there are just tags which are like, this is fanfiction and Holland is happy. Like, I have a character who's just, like, sad the whole book. And so the fact that they wrote fanfiction just about one of my characters being happy. <laughs> <laughs> so have- I feel like some of them, too, you'd be like, whew. Good thing, uh, good thing, um, Kel and Rye are adopted brothers. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, it's never stopped fan fiction before, but. True, true. Did you ever, <laughs> did you ever write any fan fiction earlier in your career? I didn't. I'm the, I'm that weird child who didn't come up through the fan fiction scene. I don't know if it's simply because, um, I, I came up through the poetry side. Or mm-hmm. if it's because I, like, everyone's always surprised to hear that I was a total jock throughout wow. high school. So, like, I didn't even watch most television shows unless they came on at, like, one in the morning because I had really bad insomnia. Um, so, all I did when I wasn't in class was I was playing sports. What did, I was what did you a play? competitive soccer player. Uh-huh. I was a competitive soccer player for 13 years, and then I was a competitive fencer. <gasps> Um, when I had to give up soccer, right? Yeah. A competitive epi fencer and for six years. And so like, I spent so little time, um, even like in the creative sphere for somebody who wanted to write (laughs) that I feel like it wasn't until I got to college that I started kind of catching up. I also like, I, I wasn't, I wasn't a huge reader, if that makes sense. Like I came up in that weird between where YA was just sorting itself out. Like I was probably 18, 19 when Twilight came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just like didn't find the fandom communities. I can't, I grew up watching anime, but I grew up watching anime at a time when you like weren't supposed to admit that you watched anime. Cause like, this is like pre nerd mainstream culture right and so like it was very weird to be back at comic-con in san diego this year and see like dragon ball super i guess it is plastered over hotel buildings because this was a thing that i watched i'd watch dragon ball z in middle school and like you would never admit that you watched dragon ball z like there was like one nerdy boy in my class who had a dragon ball z t-shirt and i like wouldn't even talk to him because like this was like a time when it was like oh god we cared so much but also these things were just like not seen as cool right not seen as acceptable um and so like I kept so many of my fandoms on the DL that like I didn't even engage outside of watching them like I, I remember like sitting up and watching Toonami and watching all of these shows but like I it would have never occurred to me to contribute to these things that I loved yeah and so you've you've said or I've seen on on social media anyway and actually you and I talked about a little bit in San Diego yeah um each of your each of your different series or different works has if not an inspirational anime one that you kind of link it with in your personal head canon um what are some of your favorites okay so it's also this is the thing where like you don't always realize how influential a thing was to you until you go back and rewatch it so, like, I can't, Cowboy Bebop is, like, one of my original, like, obsessions. And I pretty sure did not realize, like, I knew it would inspire my work, but I didn't realize how much it inspired Vicious until I went back and did a rewatch. And I was like, oh, my God, like, not only is, like, Spike and Vicious the, like, the main dynamic, but there's also, like, uh, like, there's essentially, like, a guy, a child, and a dog, right, <laughs> who, like, forms the secondary like the secondary cast of both Vicious and Cowboy Viva. 
you know? It's absolutely crazy. A lot of the styles and aesthetic, I grew up with essentially, obviously Sailor Moon, Dragon Ball Z, Cowboy Bebop, Trigun, like a lot of the classic, anything that would have aired on Tsunami. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I, as a college student, got really into like Bleach and a lot of the longer running fighting, like Escalation anime. But um, I look at a lot of my like fight scenes and a lot of the dynamics. And because I've always been such a visual person, I definitely think I owe a lot of my like metaphorical color palettes in my books and fight scene and styles to a lot of those early anime. Like you go back and you watch, um, I almost said go back and watch Vicious. You go back and you watch Cowboy Bebop and the fighting style, I would even say is like definitely on par with the the style of the combat scenes in my books, you know, I want, which I want, I want you to be able to see my books. I mean, I feel like that's weird. Cause I feel like people are always like, why didn't you just make movies? Then? <laughs> and aside from the fact that making movies is very hard <laughs> uh, and like even weirder than publishing. I like want this alchemy. Like I want this translation wherein you read it and you see it. So like for me, that's one of the reasons that fan art is so wonderful is it means that I am achieving that alchemical transmutation. But it also ties very nicely into the fact that you have a comic coming out next month. I do. I know. It's like the craziest thing ever is to then be able to move into the space where you actually get to visually articulate. And I don't. So I'm not the artist. I'm the the author and I am writing all of the comics. I think a lot of people are like, Oh, so they're inspired by you. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like I, I wrote them. <laughs> I wrote these comic scripts. And then my, um, my line artist and my colorist, um, Andrea Salimpieri and Enrica Angiolini. I really hope I'm pronouncing those right. Um, they're so extraordinary because I get to actually be a hands-on participant in articulating the visual. And so it's one of the coolest and most surreal processes I've ever been a part of. Like every few days I get a couple more pages and just to get to have that close of a conversation with somebody who's bringing my work to a visual medium. It's so cool. How did, I mean, how did that, so how did that come? I know you guys talked about this in San Diego, I'm sure, but you know, I wasn't there. So (laughs) how did that, how did this come about? Like why, why did you opt for a graphic novel route for telling this story? So um, that's actually a really good question. I, I was about halfway through writing Conjuring of Light, the third book in the Shades of Magic series and the the finale to that trilogy when I realized like, oh crap. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't think I'm ready to say goodbye to this world. Like, there are some stories I'm closing, but there are also some others I'm opening. And there's a lot of material here. And and I worked really hard to to build that world. And there are more stories I would like to tell in it. Um, And so I knew I wanted to do more books in the Shades of Magic world. And I was able to negotiate a new deal with my publisher, Tor. And they picked up a second trilogy, three more books set seven or so years after the end of the first series. And so I had all of this content. I'm very, very excited. But um, there were like these little thread stories set into the book that I knew I would never get to explore because they, I didn't want to distract from the main storyline because it's a really careful balance. You have to strike between plot and subplot. And Titan is my UK publisher. Titan also happens to have Titan Comics, which is, a major comics brand that does a lot of tie-in work. Um, and they're just 
all around wonderful. And they came to me shortly after the book deal had been announced. And they said, hey, have you have you ever wanted to do comics? And I said, yeah, but I assume they meant like, did I want to play in somebody else's sandbox? Yeah. And I was like, I don't really want to, I don't want to do the communal ownership gamut. Like, it's so stressful. Everyone's always angry at you all the time <laughs> when you play in this communal sandbox. And they were like, no, no, no. We like, what about your work? And I didn't even know this was a possibility. I didn't think I was cool enough to do that. Like, And then they were like, do you have any stories you haven't gotten to tell? And I, I had this new trilogy that was, you know, moving forward in time. But there had been a scene I had written in Conjuring of Light between Maxim Maresh, who's the king of Red London, Ryan Maresh's father, and uh, an emissary from Pharaoh. And the emissary from Pharaoh, Solonar, says, oh, well, I know about your reputation before you were the king, when you were just the steel prince. Mm. And these were lines I wrote, and I had no idea what I was talking about. But I had to give them a backstory. And so I just started writing down, like, he writes, he tells him, he recounts these three feats. He's like, yeah, the steel prince versus the pirate queen, the steel prince and the knight of knives, the steel prince who beat the rebel army. And I wrote these, and I was like, man, this is so cool. Like, I wonder what Maxim was like when he was Rye's age. How did he build this reputation? But there was no way for me to explore that in the context of Conjuring of Light because it wasn't about that. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to give you a glimpse that even these characters that you don't like, that you are seeing when they're set in their ways, when they have a role of antagonist in the narrative, that doesn't mean they were always that person. We didn't get to see Maxim Maresh become Maxim Maresh, the antagonist in Shades of Magic. Um, and he's like not a very likable character in the books. And so I, I said to Titan, I said, what about the Steel Prince? This, this arc that I referenced in Conjuring of Light, I said, I would love to see who Maxim Maresh was as a younger man and what happened. You know, why is he so different from his son? Why is he so hard on his son? Um, and so, yeah. And so that's kind of how Steel Prince, the comic series came about. Has it been, I mean, you talked about seeing the fan art coming back to you and knowing that your you, your descriptions and, and the writing was so on point that it, it evoked these images in fans' eyes and they were able to, to put it down exactly how you saw it. But when your story is in the hands of a professional, not to disparage any of the fan art, but when it's in the hands of a professional no. artist, it's totally different. So like, how, how has that been seeing your world sort of come alive in a visual sense for the very first time? I mean, it's been amazing. Well, it's, there's a risk to it as well, because I'm codifying something which I've left to interpretation. So I am dictating how a character looks or how they um, in a way that doesn't leave as much freedom for imagination. But I have to say, it's one of the coolest things ever. Um, I, the hardest thing in the world for me is sitting on artwork because I'm so used to like being able to tease my writing because I, I'm legally allowed to do that. And to not be able to tease artwork every time it hits my inbox because it's just like, it's so cool and I want to share it, but I, I'm like not allowed to. Uh, it makes the waiting a lot harder because I'm used to just like having that open line of, communication and community with my readership but it, it's amazing I, I'm not gonna lie I was I was talking with Neil Gaiman about it recently because obviously he came up through comics um Neil's like a mentor mm -hmm. hero of mine and um and we were talking about it and I said like this is the thing I did not anticipate like I did not anticipate how rewarding it would be to do these comics yeah what was his response <laughs> he said absolutely I mean that's just the thing right we were yeah. talking about 
seeing your work translated into different media and different having varying levels of control as a creator. Um, And he and we were just we were discussing like how extraordinary it is to have a partnership in this way, because so much of fiction writing is really solitary. And to work on a comic, you're never alone. Like you're never in conversation with only yourself. You are communicating with the editors and with the line artists and with the colorists and with the, de- the, the type and the design and to have this kind of constant sense of community, but like really get to see the village. Yeah. Has, has that interaction, that collaboration and, and seeing the art, you know, come back to you, has, has that affected the story at all? Has it, has it changed the, the writing process? Because, you know, like you said, writing a novel is so solitary, but now you're working with somebody mm-hmm. else, different mm-hmm. ideas can seep in. Well, you know, it doesn't change my actual writing, but it's a continuing education. You know, writing a comic is a completely different um, skill set than writing a novel, just as writing a short story is a different skill set. And so I'm definitely still learning. One of the nice things is that the longer I work with these artists, the more I know when I can hand them the reins. So there are moments when I have such a clear vision that I'm like, this panel needs to be exactly what I'm describing here. Mm-hmm. But there are other other instances where I can I know their strengths as artists and I can say, okay, I'm, this is what needs to happen in this series but I'm going to leave the perspective and the how exactly how many panels you want it to take up to you. Like show me and I'll, I'll say if it doesn't work, but like what I would really like. So there are times when I can trust in them or I can say like, I, I know that um, Andrea has an incredible skill with perspective. He's so good at, at playing with perspective that I want to be able to give him as much space as possible to come up with the most dynamic page possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to add, so we, we, we touched on before the difference, the different audiences you write for that you've written middle grade, YA quote unquote adult. Um, yeah. And so you write as both Victoria and VE, depending on the audience that you're writing for. And I, I get the reasoning why. Um, but for you, not, not for a bookseller's perspective or a publisher's perspective, but to you as an author and a creator, what is the difference between YA and adult? I, oh, that's a hard question. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I honestly feel like I might be an outlier here. Different authors are going to give you very different answers. And to some, it is really about the the themes and the nature of the diff- the struggles and the challenges that the character is going through. Um, YA is so often about coming of age in a variety of ways. It's about um, coming into adulthood, about having those burdens and those expectations and those trials and those experiences. Um, so that's one of the things that sets YA and adult apart. Um, it's, it's not as simple as the age of the protagonist. There's, that's kind of the bookstore mm-hmm. uh, perspective on it. Like, right. Like that's how we decide often what gets shelved where. So in a lot of ways, yes, it is a marketing tool. It is a way to um, kind of help readers find what they're looking for. And I, I have no problem with it in that way, but for myself personally, there is very little difference between my YA and adult. Um, I tend to write really upper YA, like very uh, pretty mature, pretty dark. 
Um, and not really in the sexual sense, just because that interests me a little bit less, but definitely in the thematic and um, in the violence and in the intensity. I, I like to think that my readers can flow pretty fluidly between the Savage Song and Vicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I put those two together. In fact, my YA books, quote unquote YA books, tend to be a lot darker than my adult books in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, to like chalk that up to my morbid 17 year old iteration. <laughs> like I was definitely my darkest self at 17. But I don't honestly know. Like, it's a very fluid category. And you'll see books that have teenage protagonists, which are just absolutely not YA. Mm -hmm. So some of it is prescription and some of it is feel. To be honest, when I was writing Vicious, Vicious on paper in a lot of ways could have been become a YA novel. Um, Or at least like in that liminal uh, YA to adult, like new adult space, new adult that's not really new adult. But um, like in that liminal space, it deals with, characters who are in their late teens for a good portion of the book. Um, but thematically, nothing about that book was ever going to be YA, you know? Yeah. And so, and yet it has themes, like it has a coming of age aspect to it. It has, it has youth and identity and yet it's just not YA. And so I think it's so hard for me to articulate. I'm usually fairly articulate, but this is a very difficult one for me. I, Right with a story in mind, I tend to have a pretty good idea of the age of my protagonist and the ideal audience. But um, I've tried so hard. I've worked so hard to cultivate a fluid readership that it, that's a hard one for me. Yeah. Do you feel similarly about genre that it's just kind of where you put stuff so people can find it? I think so. I mean, I definitely here's the thing, right? Like I read a lot of contemporary and realism, but I gravitate really hard towards the fantastical because I just have always wanted the world to be stranger than it was. So I do think it's helpful to have some delineation just so like, you know, I want to know if the book I'm picking up has any fantastical element to it. Like I want, I want the fantastical element. So I think there are times when it's helpful, but at the same time, like, I think we can get into, I get exhausted by the constant subcategorization. (laughs) <laughs> I sometimes wish there were less like just put the books on the shelf because like one of the most maddening things to me is this delineation between fiction or literature and genre and like mm-hmm. to me that is so arbitrary and I have a whole lot of feelings it would be a very sad podcast about the fact that oftentimes male genre authors get shelved in literature but female genre authors are never shelved in literature so this idea of literature as this like gatekeeping device is really frustrating to me. Um, mm-hmm. I want whatever categorizations are useful to help readers find what they want, but not be um, corralled towards anything. Like I never want someone to say, oh, uh, you can't read in this section or you won't, you won't enjoy what's in this section. But I want readers who are looking for something specific to be able to find that specific thing. So I keep thinking about the... Um you know, like the Netflix categorization of films where they, they really like, <laughs> it's like so granular and so very specific that one Netflix category yeah. might only cover like two or three movies. It, it, I mean, couldn't the same thing happen with books where they have such specific labels to slap on books that... Yeah. But I mean, so like where where is the divide though? Like where do you as a creator just write the story you write and then let somebody come after and, and slap a label on it? And does that matter at that point? I mean, here's the thing. I come at this from the perspective of somebody who writes for a living 
So mm-hmm. I, I, I would be lying to you if I said that I never considered my audience when I sat down to write a novel. I have to. It is my job. Yeah. <laughs> I need my book to be publishable. And if I turn in a book with a 65-year-old protagonist to my YA publisher, <laughs> it's not going to work. You know? <laughs> like, you cannot, it would be fallacy to say that you can move through publishing as a business without these things, without, without buying into this, without participating in this, in this way. Um, I wish we could all be so precious to just say, I'll write books and they'll figure out where to put it. But that's just not business. (laughs) That's writing. That's not publishing. Right. Mm -hmm. And that becomes like the difference between the art and the business side of it. What I love is, um, and again, this gets into other pretensions, but NPR, when they're doing their end of the year wrap up, do a very interesting cross categorization. So you can sort the books that they have chosen as their best of the year by like 12 different categories. And so you can click the filters and the filters will filter the book by genre, but they'll also filter the book by like really strange themes (laughs) or like really just kind of like much more interesting, much more dynamic, like if you're looking for books to restore your faith in the world, or Mm. if you're looking at books that examine a post-apocalyptic world, or if you're like, they're much more dynamic. And I wish we had more of that. I wish we had ways to cross filter better so that I could sort what I want to read or what I'm publishing, not only by genre, though that's an option, but also by if you like this television show or if you find yourself listening to a lot of Florence and the Machine or mm-hmm. if you like, I want to be able to sort things by really strange because this is the thing. If you like this anime, like I want the cross, the metadata to better reflect the intersections that we have as readers these days. Yeah. You know, if anything, I feel like these kinds of filters should be broadening our readership, not narrowing it. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. It's like, I don't want to make the categories narrower. I want to make them stranger and wider and more like, helpful. I want them to cut in an unpredictable direction. Exactly. Yeah. I want to be able to say, okay, I love the TV show at Hannibal and this musician recommends me something. It's a mood. It's a palette, you know? Yeah. It seems like or there is surprise a, me. where's the like random surprise button. I want people to just like click a random button. That seems like a uh, a million dollar idea that nobody has jumped on yet. They just you could <laughs> right? just probably I mean with a little bit of of uh, you know grit and determination you could write the code for that and and put everything in and put the yeah. metadata in and and people would go nuts for it. Yeah, I just wish we could we could use our interest to broaden our book pool to broaden what we want i mean i do challenge readers to pick up things that they don't know they're going to like especially writers when i am talking about uh i I hosted a workshop on writers and reader readership meaning like what do writers read and i am constantly challenging participants in that workshop to specifically a lot time and energy in their reading schedule for things that they don't think they're going to like so like challenge them to read outside of what they know they will find enjoyable because that kind of creative cross-pollination is really key. This has been The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. 
Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. Take care.